Welcome to Funding the Dream, the number one podcast for the number one crowdfunding platform, Kickstarter. Now here's your host, Richard Bliss. My co-host today is my co-host. It's uh, love having him back. I want to welcome back Jamie Stegmeyer. Jamie, welcome back. Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me back. And just so those folks who might be tuning in for the first time, tell us a little bit about uh, who you are. Well, like you said, my name is Jamie Stegmeyer, and I run a game company called Stonemeyer Games, where we've launched a, a number of our games on Kickstarter. And I write about that experience and the things I've, I've the mistakes I've made, the lessons I've learned at uh, KickstarterLessons.com. Oh, you got a new URL. I don't think the last time I was talking to you, you had that URL. It, it just forwards to the the Kickstarter lessons on my on my Stillmeyer Games site, but yeah, I just thought that might be easier for people to remember. Kickstarterlessons.com. dot com, and you kind of just say you run a. You know what I think? I've always felt that you are a writer, and then on the side you do this game thing. That's how the way I've always <laughs> right because we first got introduced to you really through your blogging for the last what has it been seven years now that you've been blogging every day for the last seven years. Yeah, on my personal blog, maybe even eight years now, a while. Wow. And and also, we're going to talk a little bit about um, – we've got an anniversary coming up because you've been on the show as a co-host for a while now. Um, but this this month marks an anniversary for you, doesn't it? It, it does. Uh, we're recording this – I don't know if I can say this. But sure. It's the, December 9th, and I believe my last day at my full-time job last year was de- around December 12th or 13th. And the next day, that was when I started doing Stillmeyer Games full time. Yeah, you you started living the dream. Yeah. Right? yeah, and that was due because Kickstarter. Kickstarter made that possible. You really paid attention to that. And so let's talk about um, let's talk about a little bit about Kickstarter because it's changing from when you and I first started out, kind of in this space. Well, you know, for me, my anniversary was November. Uh, I think November something was the first podcast three years ago. Right. Uh, um, that year, 2011, there were 100 games successfully funded on Kickstarter, and they raised 200. They raised two million dollars, and everybody was like, "Oh, the bubble's about to burst!" I can remember, you know, the right. the bubble was going to burst, and here we are, three years later, approaching you know 100 million dollars later in the tabletop game alone. Um, that was a wild west time. It certainly has changed now, hasn't it? It has changed. I mean, there are how many how many tabletop game kickstarters are on Kickstarter right now? One hundred and sixty right now. One hundred and sixty. Yes, yeah. so that's that's a huge difference. That's a lot more choices for people to make. I mean, obviously, I don't think anyone can back all one hundred and sixty games currently on Kickstarter. No, uh, and and so not, not only back them, but even pay attention to what they are. You know, people ask me, right. "Hey, did you see this?" And I'm just I, how how could I possibly keep up and see all the games that are out there? Some people do, but I just can't keep up anymore. There is a tool that I use. Um, it's run by a guy, a guy named Matt Wolf on Board Game Geek, where it's it, he lists every tabletop game project that comes through. It's one of these geek lists that you subscribe to on Board Game Geek. So I get a little notification every time a new project uh, is on Kickstarter, thanks to Matt's hard work. So these, these these new projects that are popping up there that Matt's listing out, um, they've got their work cut out for for them because it's not like it used to be. It's not like you can go tell people, hey, I've got a game on Kickstarter. I have to admit that most of the times when I hear about a new game, um, Aldo's a common friend of ours. Uh, is he a distributor? When he brings out his games, I assume, I literally assume that they all were on Kickstarter. 
Right, right. Right, that's it's just and then uh, Spiel just happened last month. Uh, 100 and was, I think 700 800 new games were released at Spiel. Uh, this I call it the tsunami and it's just overwhelming so much of the distribution network, but it's also overwhelming people's ability to um, just to track it or to to find relevance in every single one. Do you see some changes coming? Are you feeling are you feeling any kind of uh, impact? Because you're one of those innovators out there in front running a business based on Kickstarter. What kind of impact are you feeling on that? Well, yeah, I guess from the publisher perspective, I, uh, I, I mostly I'm, I'm very curious how my next project will do. And I'm not sure if it will be indicative of Kickstarter as a whole because I think we've done a pretty good job of building up trust among our backers. So I, I, I suspect that m- many of our backers will support the, our upcoming project. But I... I guess I am a little more nervous than I've been in the past, um, just because th- there are so many projects on on Kickstarter now that even uh, I guess the the good sign to me is that I have seen some really well done polished projects where pr- pr- people pretty much did everything right, um, and, and they've done fine. And they've done fine. Oh, yeah, not spectacular. The spectacular ones are becoming harder and harder to to have. But you know, solid. You know, they're raising their money. Solid. Um, projects that are just doing well but right. uh, you, you mentioned your backers i think you know in some ways that's the secret how many you've got several thousand people in that mailing list of yours right yeah it's up to uh, close to nine thousand now and so in some ways that nine thousand is almost if you, your retail store customer list right you can send out say hey we need to have a new project and uh, everybody shows up for the grand opening um, it's kind of launching something, you know, a new something new, and it, and it works for you. And so, by meticulously tracking that, you've had a big impact. But somebody who's just starting out, they're really gonna, I think, gonna struggle a little bit compared to people in the past. Yeah, I I, I agree. I've been trying to on the blog that I write. I've been trying to focus on those people a little bit more because it is kind of daunting when when you see these very successfully funded projects from from people who have built up that audience. I think it actually, it really, it reinforces the idea that you've talked about many times of building up that crowd before the project as daunting as it may be, and it might take more time than it has in the past. Um, you know, it's interesting because we talked about that years ago when I was talking about that. That was to launch your initial project. Now right. we're talking about that crowd is necessary to launch your continuing projects. Right. 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 And, and honestly, when we first started this thing off, most people didn't think past their first project. Most people saw it as a one and done. Even game designers and a lot of folks were like, well, this is our one shot. Right. And then, you know, you raise the money and then you have the game and you're like, oh, oh, I guess I can keep going. And you're a perfect example of that. Um, and then more and more people I continue to hear who are trying to make a career out of board game design. That I think there's a renaissance going on. I think more and more people are just finding, even though there's so many more games. I still don't think it's a glut because a glut to me is where demand, where supply out, outstrips demand or overwhelms demand. But that's, we don't have that here, do we? I don't think we do uh, as a whole. As a backer, for what about you? Like, what, do, you, do you back many – how many tabletop game projects do you back? Have you seen that change? Have you seen the way that you look at it as a backer? Yeah, but it's, for me, yes, but that's because um, of personal changes, uh, li- personal okay. life changes. Not, you know, I, I've, my work has overwhelmed me. I don't have the time to sit down and have the fun, but I still right. see games. So now what's interesting is I'm a little further downstream now. So um, we had our game group last night. 
uh, 18, 20 people showed up. A whole lot of br- games are brought in. And I get to see these games that my friends have backed on Kickstarter. And I'm like, oh, I like that one. And then I'm looking to place the order of how, to, how do I go get it. So I'm actually one that's one step down the stream now. But that's simply because of time. Right, right. And so, so I don't know if that answered the question. My, my well, kind of, I guess I imagine every backer is, is different in that way. I, I think something I've been keeping my eye on, is, and it's more perception, this is very subjective, but I feel like a lot of Kickstarter game projects have been delivered in the last few months. And uh, I wonder if that impacts the pledge behavior of backers. Like if, if you receive 10 games over a spread of two weeks, like you physically <laughs> receive those packages... Are you really excited those two weeks to go out and back more projects, or are you well, a little valid, daunted? Valid, I'm excited and daunted, you know. Valid point. Now, if they had spread those out over the year, then I would be kind of like on crack or something. Like it's okay, okay. Right. Th- this month I didn't get my project. Oh, I need to go out and back right. one. So, I, you know. But to have them all come at once—that's a—that's a valid point. Is that you're like, oh my gosh, I did not realize I was backing that many projects. And that's a little out of the backer's control because I may have backed those once a month over the last year, but they just yep. happen to all arrive at the same time. And I think that will continue to happen as publishers try to deliver games by by either Gen Con or Essence. So that season between like August and November, I think will be a prime delivery season. So I, I wonder if that will really fade as a time to launch a Kickstarter where since other people will be receiving so many games from previous projects during that time. Yeah, I had somebody just ask me uh, this week if they should launch their game at, at Gen Con, and I said, usually no, but the key word is usually. Yeah. Um, but cause you're, th- there's distractions, there's um, difficulty of staying focused. It, you know, it really depends, but um, more and more it can be a difficult thing just because y- you need so much focus now random launching something in a random event and i use uh, gen con as random meaning that people are just going to randomly walk by that's one thing but if you've built up a following for example jamie if you were to go somewhere and say oh by the way i'm launching a kickstarter and i'm at this event people are going to seek you out right they did at gen con right yeah i think that's once you're a known entity even just by a small number of people i think that makes a big difference yeah, these, these, these changes are coming. You and I talked about it, I think, one of the previous episodes. Um, the distributors can't handle the flood. The retailers can't handle the flood. Um, and when, when demand outstrips supply, not, not supply, but outstrips the distribution model of supply, that's uh-huh. when, like a, like a stone in a stream, the, the suppliers and the um, buyers – will find a way to connect and go around those restrictions. Um, in the olden days, the without so many direct ways and direct Kickstarter backers and that type of thing, I've written about on one of my blogs several years ago about the retail chain being a limiting factor, these friendly local game store being a limiting factor to the growth of the hobby board game. Because people would play a game and they're like, well, where do I buy this? And um, a, re- a, a retail hobby store can only carry so much product and right. what's going to happen is more and more, as you're hearing, is that they're only going to carry the ones that, with so much new product coming in, they're only going to carry the ones that they can sell. And so, you know, a Settlers of Catan, a Ticket to Ride, but it's also going to start to be one more, one more, because each game is going to start to become, you're going to have these bestsellers, and pretty soon the retail stores are going to only be selling these bestsellers. Yeah, that's, 
that's an interesting dilemma. So that so that's a changing landscape in itself. I mean, well, you, and you're kind of part of that too because you because your attitude about traditional retail and distribution isn't necessarily um, kind of in lockstep with the way the industry's operated in the past. You want to talk about that? Yeah, and, and even for us, it's evolved over time. When I um, for viticulture and euphoria. I had the mindset that I would keep 10 to 20% of post-Kickstarter inventory, the retail inventory, for myself. I would keep it on Amazon Fulfillment since I had this cool Amazon Fulfillment system set up to, to sell games on Amazon or through my website. And I'd send the rest to a distribution broker. I, I've worked with Aldo. I work with a, a company called Greater Than Games now for distribution brokerage. Um, and I thought that 10 to 20% would make a big difference because the profit margin is much better on that than if I sold it to distributors. But as I've learned, and, and this is my personal experience, it might be different for, for other people, but I found that it's really it's, that strategy really has to be all or nothing. I really have to go all in for distribution or I have to go all in for selling them directly. Mixing the two doesn't work because if I try to compete on price with, um, with other retailers, whether they're online or brick and mortar, through those direct sales I'm trying to make, then I end up. Uh, angering those distributors and retailers that I'm also trying to sell to. Um, and yep. so the best price that I can basically offer is right around MSRP, which s- some people are willing to pay, especially if they, if they don't have a local game store, but, or they want to support the company, things like that. But many people don't because they can, they know they can get a discounted price at, at a miniature market or cool stuff. So what's the so, answer? What's the answer? Oh, so the answer that I'm that I'm testing out is for uh, like for all of my latest releases. Like I have a second printing of Euphoria. I have a an expansion of Viticulture called Tuscany, and I have Viticulture itself. Ninety eight percent of them are going to distributors. I'm keeping a small supply just to send for like review copies and replacement parts, things like that. And then on the flip side, I have a product called the Treasure Chest, which is a gaming accessory that I'm not sending to distributors and retailers at all. I sold it to retailers during the Kickstarter campaign, but after Kickstarter, I mean, that was it. Like, that was the only chance for any retailer to get a special discount on the game. They can now buy it through our website like anybody else. And so it's, I'm kind of drawing up, I'm trying to test out the flip side, the, the Cards Against Humanity model of selling directly to people and only directly to people with that product. And so, so as a, a few company, months, well, all that worked out, right? So, as a company, you still have a blended uh, approach, but as a, on a product right. by product po- basis, you're testing this out. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting way to go about it because, right? People will. It'll be interesting to see how people respond to that. And again, you have a slight advantage over somebody who's just starting out is that you have built up a substantial, active, faithful um, following. Right, that that does help, and for a product like the treasure chest, it's something that people will bring to like their game night or their game conventions, and I think other people will look at it and say, "Oh, I've got to have that. I want that." Um, but I will say to anyone out there who's thinking about using that type of model where you're selling things direct sales one by one, it takes exponentially more time and effort to to handle those orders than it does to sell a hundred copies to a distributor. It, Right, so, you might be yeah. The the margins certainly are better, but right. you're paying somebody, and uh, that means you're just paying yourself. 
Right, exactly. And and you can't you can kind of cheat by not and I use the word cheat, but in your head about how much things cost with, by giving your time away for free. But nobody can make a living by giving their time away for free. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Val- valid point. And you know that's a valid point because uh, our friend Aldo often talks about that. You know how much you know, he uh, he I think he has eighty clients now um, that uh, he represents, and he's and he says the the inquiries are over are overwhelming. But he will be cutting some of those back because he's st- having to focus on those that you know are serious or doing well. Um, so it's interesting to see that that transformation. I still think that there's the demand, and we're and we're wrapping up here. The demand and the supply are still not uh, synced up as efficiently as they could be. I still think there's so many out there, people out there who are really. I, part of it is I think that. Um, Let's just use and this, this could be a whole other discussion, but let's talk about game you know we could mention game crafter if the game crafter was suddenly to invest in full on printing capabilities to do manufacturing qual- the quality levels so that it's like, oh, you want to do a print run of three hundred all right, and I can meet the you know the printing costs of a traditional printer okay, you know j t over at uh, game crafter he's a smart guy he's the, if anybody could do it, he could figure that out. My point is is that you might find ways more and more for people to say, you know what, I can make enough money selling a game that's got a three-month shelf life because of the onslaught. I can sell 400 copies to my backers. I'm going to move on to the next game. And then just say, you know what, the whole retail thing, I'm just going to bypass that. Too much work. I actually, I think you're on to something there, Richard. I, I think we will see some of that where it's truly just a Kickstarter project. It's not a Kickstarter project in the hopes of launching a line of games. It's just that Kickstarter project. And I think that will actually, that could be very successful for people who try that model because backers know that that's the one time they can get it. Yep. That's the one time. There's some, there's some patience there of the person, the creator to say, okay, I'm going to discipline myself that I'm not going to go nuts. Um, right. I get 4,000 backers. So I'm going to print 10,000 copies. No, no, no. You get 4,000 backers print, you know, 5,000 copies or 4,500 and then move on because uh, if there's more demand, okay, then kickstart a second run. But I th- right. I'm just seeing, yes, more and more where people who have built up the model. But again, there's a whole bunch of people who are now coming into this saying, yeah, yeah, well, what about me who's just starting out? And uh, that might be a whole other conversation. Hey, we're about out of time. Great. Well, um, this is fun to talk about the future. I, is that what we talked about? I, it just well, kind of we just kind of rambled here. I rambled. <laughs> you had specific answers. I rambled. Yes, there's a lot coming. Um, some of it's good. Some of it can be very scary. But it's been scary since the beginning. Jamie, always thank you for joining me on the show. Yeah, great chatting with you, Richard. Hey, we appreciate you listening. Take care. Our intro and exit music is Orientation by Bureaucratic. You can listen to more of their music at soundcloud.com slash bureaucratic. Today's show is produced by Come Alive Creative. We want to thank their work, and you can find them at comealivecreative.com. Thanks for listening. Take care. Take care.